You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a show where we reimagine the word citizen as a verb, reclaim it from those who've weaponized it, and remind ourselves how to wield our collective power. This is a new episode. I'm Baratunde. Like any healthy democracy, this show is stronger when you participate. And we have a number of ways for you to do that. If you're on the social media, use the hashtag HowToCitizen when you post about the show and we will lift up as many as we can. If you want to be more direct, you can always reach out to us via comments at howtocitizen.com. We still check email around here. And if you're doing the actions that we ask you to at the end of each show, let us know what you did. Send an email to action at howtocitizen.com. I am loving seeing your reflections, the organizations you're starting. It's really great. Let's keep it up. And speaking of keeping things up, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to rate and review this show wherever you're listening to it. I suggest five stars, but that's up to you, citizen. A quick word on how we make this show. We do most of them live in Zoom with a visible cameras on, chat room fired up audience, which could include you. You have a chance to ask our guests questions and literally help make the show. You can sign up for these invites by going to howtocitizen.com and joining my email list. And yes, I love the live audience experience, but you're special because you're right here. So don't worry, I'm going to be back 
check in with you, certainly at the end of the show, where I give you particular ways that you can citizen. Now, allow me to pass the mic to myself as I set up this episode. We're still living with COVID and we're not living great with it in the United States. But I've said this for a while that what we have lacked in national leadership, we have in abundance on the ground in local and regional cooperation. It's not always those with the most resources getting the job done. It's those willing to work hard, use their networks and step up. In this episode, we're going to meet two of these individuals, people who left their comfort zones, tapped into their contact list, and leveraged everything and everyone they know to fight this disease so that no one is left unprotected. Our guest, Danielle Allen, said it best in her Washington Post op-ed where she wrote, quote, There is only one real silver bullet. It's called grit. This is a can-do country, and our determination to beat the disease is our ultimate weapon. We'll get to Danielle later, but first, I need to introduce you to Dr. Amy Amenlari. I actually know Dr. Amy personally because of New York City. (laughs) Back in March 2020, Elizabeth and I returned from our last trip to that city this year, it seems. And when we departed, it was a very different city than when we had landed. And we knew we were in for a ride. But our friends in New York were in for a much worse one. And within a month, that city got crushed by COVID-19. One of our friends in Brooklyn, Trisha Wong, stood up to help. And she formed this network of volunteers to get personal protective equipment, PPE, directly into the hands of frontline health workers. Early in the process of setting that up, knowing that this disease was going to come for L.A. and other cities later, Trisha reached out to Elizabeth, the same Elizabeth who's an executive producer on this show, full disclosure, to help start an L.A. version of the network. They would call this effort Last Mile PPE. Now it's simply known as Last Mile. And yo, I saw our house transformed into a PPE coordination hub. There were Zoom calls and WhatsApps and inspections and vetting of shipping manifests. It was wild. And in the process of running the L.A. chapter, Elizabeth met Dr. Amy Amenlari, a San Diego doctor who had joined the L.A. effort but would eventually create her own in San Diego to meet the needs of her community. Here's my conversation with Amy. I'm Amy Amanlari. I am an emergency physician, and I'm also a medical director and part owner of Coastal Family Urgent Care here in Carlsbad. I am the founder and lead of Last Mile San Diego. So I want to start back in the beginning of this whole COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic mess, because you're an emergency medicine doctor, and I'd love your take as someone who's been on the front lines of this battle, what take me back in time and tell me what that was like for you in the beginning as a doctor and just as Amy. Well, you know, back in March, it was very difficult working in the front lines because myself and my colleagues felt a lot of stress and anxiety with obviously this pandemic coming out that nobody really knew much about and conflicting data and to make things worse, we felt kind of unprotected because we felt like these N95 masks, which we used to use daily and toss out after one use, not think about it, all of a sudden were not readily available and were really scarce. And it was difficult to be able to even get one oftentimes. So that was the beginning of what started my thinking about how to address this problem that I saw affecting my peers, affecting colleagues in other hospitals across San Diego. And it was very real and I could, you know, I experienced it firsthand. So what ended up happening was I said, well, what is the most scarce PPE that we need? 
and that was N95 masks, and they still are scarce. I just want to cut in here real quick to say Amy is an ER doctor and yet took on more work because she experienced a problem firsthand affecting her and her peers. She knew there was a lack of awareness about PPE shortages, so she gets involved and she starts by simply reaching out to a friend. So myself and my friend Grace, my good friend Grace, who also has a lot of family members who are in emergency medicine, frontline providers, she and I decided to undertake vetting or sourcing. Vetting is like like the improper term, but sourcing and trying to find legitimate N95s ourselves. We decided to just try to take it into our hands, try to get N95s and try to get it to people that needed them. So that search, what did that look like? That was crazy. So she has two kids. I have three and, you know, we have families. So we would every night after they were all to bed and everything was done in the house, we would we would just sit together on the phone and on the computer and just search and search until like 2 or 3 a.m. every night looking for, you know, legitimate suppliers, looking for sources. And then really, we just got into the minutia of what is a real N95 and what is a fake one. And we came up with a protocol on how we would determine this. Um, and in the end, honestly, what happened was we came to dead ends because most of the N95s out there were counterfeit. And we decided to kind of think outside of the box. And we thought, well, what N95s would be legitimate? And we thought, well, why are there counterfeit N95s now to begin with? It's because of the pandemic. So we reached, we were thinking, let's try to reach the N95s that were pre-pandemic because there was no motivation to make them counterfeit at that time. So this was like the seed for Last Mile San Diego, we started reaching out to the community. We reached out to surfboard shapers, construction workers, families who had earthquake kits and emergency kits that they happened to have a bunch of N95s in their garage and didn't even realize it. So we really kind of did this large scale community-based mission to gather N95s that the community had to donate to us. So if you've got counterfeit N95s, there's no proof that they can filter the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And there's no proof that they're actually protecting anyone. So we wanted verified and legitimate masks. So obviously, it's not helping anyone to distribute something that's not going to protect us against the virus. Did you set up a phone tree? Did you put up an ad on Facebook? Like, What did that outreach look like? And who else was involved? So honestly, it was a lot of just interpersonal connections. We reached out because Grace's family is very involved in surfing and the surf community. So she reached out to surfboard shapers that were like prominent in our community. Um, I actually had a banner in my backyard because my backyard faces the trail. So we got this huge banner made asking for help and people would walk by on the trail and Myself or my husband, we would stop by and talk to them because they would ask, like, what is this about? And so we kind of spread things word of mouth through the community. And people that were walking by, and, and they actually showed a lot of interest, they would post on the Nextdoor app. They would post on their social media. We posted on our personal social media because at that time we hadn't organized our last mile social media. So that's really how it began. Very grassroots, very community oriented. And just from that, we went from 20 masks to hundreds of masks that were like dropped at my doorstep at all times of the day. And it was very inspiring to see and like very touching to see that people really cared. Even if it was five masks, they would come and just bring whatever they had. People in Orange County who saw my Facebook post would, you know, offer their masks. And that was really, you know, that was pretty amazing. Did you, did you feel a bit like a drug dealer accepting these uh, packages dropped <laughs> off at all hours at your home? It, it was weird. There would be like random people parked in front of my house. And uh, yeah, it was very, it was kind of a little weird because these N95s, that's like they were so precious and they are. So how has this effort evolved from strangers dropping off unmarked packages in your front yard to something even more today? What does it look like now? We realized that we needed to you know, expand our efforts. 
So we started reaching out, each of us, to our friends and family and contacts. And eventually, one connection after another, I ended up getting linked to Last Mile LA, which I'm so grateful for, and linked to Elizabeth Stewart, the prior lead of Last Mile um, LA. And that was a very pivotal connection. She took us under her wing and was already connected to Last Mile National, Last Mile New York, New York City. And we became a part of her group just because of just by talking to friends and being interconnected. So with Last Mile LA, Elizabeth showed us what they were doing. We were involved in their WhatsApp group and Zoom meetings. And from there, Grace and I decided that San Diego needed to have a similar chapter. Um, Their philosophy was to deliver PPE directly into the hands of providers because what I was seeing at the hospital was that hospital administration, for whatever reason, wasn't giving us PPE. And even if they were donated, we don't know what their reasoning is, but we didn't receive them. So we felt the best way to help was to deliver directly into the hands of people that needed them. So we donated to 13 hospitals and clinics in Tijuana. We've been doing that for a few months because they have so little resources and so little PPE. And, you know, we wanted to reach out and help them. And we were able to do that. And we're continuing to do that every week. We have batches of donations going to them. Um, And we're also focusing on areas near the border Recently, I was excited. We have open connections to Barrio Logan. What's Barrio Logan? Barrio Logan is a the southern portion of San Diego. It's part of the Promise Zone. I think there are 22 Promise Zones in the U.S., which are identified by the government as the most impoverished and communities under most duress. And this area is the most highly afflicted with COVID. This area mm. includes parts of Chula Vista National City. And so we have currently been able to tap into that region. And we just actually hosted and helped to host a drive-by donation drive for the community members. These, uh, 35% of the children there are homeless. People are living in their cars. They don't have PPE when they're going to work. The particular organization we're collaborating with is called the Good Neighbor Project. And it's headed by John Alvarado, who was born and raised and is like, he would, I I was there last weekend at the drive and he's like the mayor of Barrio Logan. He was walking around. He knew everybody's name. And, you know, so we're working with him because he's part of the community. Yeah. And um, he's opening doors to let us try to help, including San Isidro Health Clinic, which is right at the border. And they are a super hotspot with, I think they, that area has the highest number of COVID deaths. This show was about the power that we have as citizens to help shape our communities, to help each other out, to put the benefit of the many ahead of the few. And so what you just articulated feels very much aligned with the mission of this show. How do you think, in light of your answer, about your power as a citizen? Honestly, it's been an amazing journey just like for myself as a person, but also in the way that I see the community and people in general. Um, I never thought I would be a leader in this capacity and be able to do what we've done. I think that people underestimate the power they have as individuals. You know, I came into this. Oh, I didn't mention. I don't think I mentioned that I had COVID. No, that little, that small detail. You did not say that earlier. Way to bury the lead, Dr. Amy. I was nervous. No, <laughs> That's all right. You're, you're relaxed now. Let these dramatic facts fly. So also... <laughs> I, was, I was sick with COVID after being in the ER, and I was sick for two months to the point that my pulse ox, my, you know, my oxygen level was in the 80s when I would walk up a flight of stairs. I thought I had to go to the hospital and be admitted. And this went on for two months, and I, I was really worried. And so that was the time when Grace and I started our journey and started sourcing N95s. But yeah, that was a huge impetus was like, I was a patient and a provider. And I, I saw both sides of it. And, you know, I didn't want anyone else to be at risk for that. That was a huge thing. I missed that. So you were starting to say that you think we underestimate the power that we have. Yes, absolutely. 
I have no background in being a leader or in a nonprofit organization or anything similar to what I'm doing now, not even close. And I think that if you believe in something and you just take the steps to communicate with people and make connections and relationships, I think that's one of the most important things, staying positive, believing that you can make a difference and take a, whatever role you want to take it, whether it's leadership or contributions. I think that everybody can do a lot more than they realize as a citizen. This is exactly what we did. And we just found ways that were uncharted and we were able to do a lot in our time. I mean, we're just for numbers sake, we've delivered 44,717 PPE to 19 hospitals and 217 providers in San Diego. For someone listening to this who is motivated by your story and connects with it um, and wants to help their community through this pandemic that some of us feel somewhat abandoned by, whether it's a hospital administrator or a layer of our government, but wants to tap into that power they have, what advice would you offer them? What would you ask them to do to help their communities? Honestly, I would tell them to look into local groups and local organizations close to them. And it depends on their level of how involved they would want to be, whether it's financial donations, volunteer work with their you know, expertise or strengths, or if they want to take a leadership role and you know, form their own group. I think at any level, if they reach out and take some kind of action and communication, and I think that that's really key. And I think that they will find that they have a lot more power to affect change than they realize, because that's my experience. I did not realize that we could do so much at the outset of this journey. Like just one connection leads to another connection, which leads to important collaborations and the power to take action on those relationships and what they have to offer. So I would advise people to not overlook discussion, joining local groups, reaching out to them, and not feel that just because you are one individual in the community that you can't make some kind of difference. And on top of that, just even more simply as a citizen, even being a responsible citizen in this time, taking the proper precautions, you know, adhering to public health guidelines, and just being a responsible person for yourself impacts a ton of people, you know, masking, et cetera, distancing. So even just that makes a big difference. So that's what I would say. Well, you have definitely inspired me, Amy. Um, and I already knew a bit of your story, but I learned a lot more just now. Thank you for sharing your time. Uh, thanks for sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Amy. I think that everybody can make a contribution. And I definitely believe this from what I've experienced. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so I'm back. It's just me and you for a second. If there is anyone who could have called it a day in the middle of a pandemic, I think it's an emergency medicine doctor. I think. They've got enough to be like, I'm going to take a nap now. I'm on the front lines. And Dr. Amy Amanlari did not do that. She kept going. She kept giving. She kept learning and pushed herself well out of her comfort zone. All while she had the Rona. Did you hear how she almost forgot to tell me that she had COVID herself? I, I didn't know that going into that interview. Amy's not alone. There are so many others out there who are tapping into their networks, valuing the collective over themselves as individuals. And another such person is Danielle Allen, an ethicist, a professional ethicist. Now, what, you ask, does an ethicist have to do with the pandemic? Keep listening and let's find out. Danielle Allen is the James Bryant Conant University professor at Harvard University. I know, it sounds fancy. It's fancy. She's also the director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics, where she now spearheads their COVID-19 response initiative. Her team published the Roadmap to Pandemic Resilience. It was the nation's first comprehensive operational roadmap for mobilizing and reopening the U.S. economy in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. If you saw my Instagram videos on when can we go out and how we reopen, they were powered by this work. Now, as if her expertise on the Rona response weren't enough, Danielle served as the co-chair of the Bipartisan Commission on the Practice of Democratic Citizenship and co-authored its 2020 report titled Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century. She co-chaired that along with our episode one guest, Eric Luke. So take a listen. Danielle is an expert on justice, citizenship, and democracy. She's authored several books on all those topics. She's a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. Basically, her life's work has made her perfect for how to citizen and for how to approach this moment, this pandemic moment from the lens of people power. Welcome, 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 Danielle. Thank you, Baratunde. It is great to be here. I am so glad to talk with you. I love the title of your new podcast. Thank you. Thank you. And it's good to see you again. Um, thank you for saying yes. And 
I want to jump right into it because your work centers on justice, democracy, and equality. And none of those is the word epidemiology. So what do justice, democracy, and equality have to do with a pandemic? Well, the pandemic, I think, right from the get-go, showed us that there were these incredibly horrible ruptures in our social contract. We've known that in some ways for a long time, but I think it just really put it right in our face. So for me, in the very, very beginning, I was shocked by how quickly some people moved to saying, well, you know, maybe if older people get it worse, maybe it's just their time. Mm. Well, you know, if people are incarcerated, well, you know, it's like they get the punishment. There's just this really rapid move to abandon parts of our society to this really terrible disease. And that was very, very shocking to me. And so as somebody who is the head of an ethics center, I reached out immediately to people that I knew who were working on pandemic response to ask the question, how can ethics center help? Because I think we need to pursue answers that start from the proposition that we don't abandon anybody. What does it mean when a society, when a government starts to say that this loss is acceptable, starts to abandon entire swaths of society? What does that do to, to the legitimacy of the project? From my point of view, that just it means it's not legitimate, <laughs> you know, right at that point. In other words, you know, this is where I am at some level a deep traditionalist. I go back to the words of the Declaration of Independence. And in that text, it articulates a theory of revolution, the right of revolution, but that right of revolution is grounded on the idea that human beings build governments in order to secure the safety and happiness of the people. That's the language of the Declaration, the safety and happiness of the whole people. And it's not about an individual happiness. There is that individual moment too, that's about the pursuit of happiness, but it's connected to the idea that we secure political institutions to secure our safety and happiness. So when a government's not doing that, when it is self-consciously not pursuing the safety and happiness of the whole people, it's by definition violated the sort of terms of its original employment. Mm. The people, from my point of view, at that point need to reorganize. They need to redesign um, rebuild so that they have institutions that are actually pursuing and delivering safety and happiness for all. You use this phrase, you said, I asked myself, how can I help? And then my exposure and experience to you, like literally a friend sent me a white paper via text message, which lets you know a little something about who my friends are, big nerds. I was going to say, yeah, geek central. Here we go. <laughs> yes. And so for clarification and disclosure to the listener, I read this paper, I was moved, and I reached out and someone there reached out and I got roped in to part of your efforts, Danielle. Yes, and, and, I was wondering and, and, if you were going to fess up to that. I am going, I will confess uh, my, my sins of citizenship and civic mindedness. And, and I, I jumped on you know, video calls with you and your team and saw drafts of things. And what impressed me was this coalition that you had assembled. I think when I heard that someone from an ethics department at Harvard University had something to say about pandemics. I'm like, great, more ivory tower thinking. How's that gonna help on the ground? But then I looked at the participants and you had technologists and you had biologists and public health officials, you had lawyers, you had economists, conservative and liberal. And, and so talk to me about the relationships that you leaned into, forged or built on to be helpful and what you wanted that form of help to look like. Well, thank you for sharing all that. And I'm glad that you did fess up to your own participation. Baratune Day was critical in the effort of a big network of people to figure out not just, you know, what's the right answer to the pandemic, but also how do we communicate broadly to a public and get people on board for a shared purpose of responding in ways that are about the safety and well-being of everybody. So we needed Baratunde's voice there to help us think through that project of communication and telling a story about all of us together. So Baratunde, you were fundamental to our work. I hope you know that. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to make that the headline of this episode. We're done here. Thank you so much. Our guest today was Danielle Allen, I Saved America by Baratunde. Exactly. <laughs> But please continue with the part that I'm really interested in, which is not about me. I love the question. And I think I can start sort of at the end rather than the beginning, because great, great. we did build a huge network of incredibly varied people from epidemiologists and 
public health folks and doctors and clinicians to mayors, to county public health officials, to visual artists, to YouTube stars who have sort of million subscribers to their YouTube channel, the whole gamut, technologists. And what I learned from the experience of doing this was to have great faith, honestly, in all of us, in the people, in Americans from all over the place who all kind of ran to a fire and said, here are the specific skills I can bring to bear. How can I help? Um, so that was the sort of what everybody was doing. Why did we start building a big network? It was in the beginning, a very simple reason. It was just because we heard our elected officials giving us false choices. They were presenting a situation where it was, you know, people kept saying over and over, we had to pick between protecting lives and protecting livelihoods, health or the economy. That was a false choice. From the very, very beginning, that was a false choice. And in order to be able to prove that it was a false choice, that it is actually possible to align the objectives of protecting life, protecting livelihoods, and protecting liberties, we needed people who were experts across all of those different dimensions. So it wasn't enough just to have a health conversation or just have an economist's conversation. Uh, we needed like, every kind of piece of expertise that was being touched by the pandemic. And when you sort of started to tally up all the different kinds of expertise that were relevant, it was basically everything. <laughs> so we were looking for people who were really smart and really creative, um, but were just across the board in areas of expertise. And so and the messaging and communication mattered a lot because at the end of the day, I think what our fundamental belief came down to was that the quality of our response would depend on how strong a sense of mutual commitment we could inspire among Americans to one another. And at the end of the day, the people who do build that foundation of mutual commitment amongst us are our artists, our communicators, our storytellers. Uh, and so that work is just so important. Mutual commitment is a great phrase, and it, it leads to my follow-up, which has to do with what you're seeing that maybe many of us are not. Uh, as I look at the homepages of major news outlets and listen to the various feeds, I see a failure and I hear a negative message. But I'm hoping you have seen this mutuality you just described, uh, this social contract at work in some region, in some way. Is there good news to share on that front? There is good news. I can't say it's everywhere. I have to agree with you that at the end of the day, we have to admit um, that as a country, we failed. I mean, 170,000 people are dead. This was unnecessary and preventable. And I do think that the failure um, falls on the charge accounts of our elected officials, of leaders of a variety of different organizations. And I do actually think that the country deserves something like this, the 9-11 Commission, uh, that spent a lot of time figuring out what happened, what went wrong, that we failed as badly as we did. So I do think that's important. At the same time that that's true, what are the glimmers of hope? Um, I mean, we have seen communities come together in remarkable ways. And we have seen mayors who have called out volunteer organizations and figured out how to deliver food um, and housing options for people who need to deal with quarantine and isolation. Can I ask you to name names? This is the opposite of shame. Like I, I'm eager to hear who's doing it right. What can you share with us? Well, I want to call out um, Mayor Steve Benjamin from Columbia, South Carolina. And I mean, when I call out somebody, that doesn't necessarily mean that the case incidence is low in their community, um, because sometimes they're struggling against a larger system where they're not getting support. So Mayor Steve Benjamin in Columbia, South Carolina, has worked incredibly hard to keep his community safe. He has brought knowledge to his community. He has activated resources, volunteer services even though he had a governor who was saying, we're not shutting down, uh, you know, we're not doing masking, et cetera. So he was putting out the masking messages, all kinds of things, even though his governor wasn't. Um, Mayor Cabaldon in uh, West Sacramento, California has been extraordinary. He's somebody who has a deep understanding of HIV AIDS and how that devastated communities and how contact tracing in that context turned the tide and the fact that it required ownership by local communities um, in order to turn the tide on the disease. So the people affected by the disease needed to own the process of contact tracing, for example. And so he really um, drove a big project of education and dissemination around what contact tracing is um, for the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And I think he really transformed the conversation 
um, within his community of municipal leaders um, on that point. So those are just two people to start. I mean, I could go on. I, mean, I think I've seen mayors do remarkable things over the course of this pandemic. There have been calls by you and others uh, for a while for regional response. You know, in the absence of an organized federal government response, uh, I even joke that maybe states could get together and form their own more perfect union, a sort of federalized system of service delivery. Is that something you're seeing happen above the level of mayor, but below the level of, say, a White House on Pennsylvania Avenue? It is happening. Um, it's absolutely happening. Um, you know, states have built up capacity. I mean, I'm very fortunate to live in Massachusetts, which has built up a pretty robust infrastructure of testing and contact tracing and supported isolation and actually has COVID under reasonable control at the moment. Um, we did also manage to achieve um, bipartisan legislation introduced in both the Senate and the House to deliver testing funds uh, to states and funds to support contact tracing, a compromise amount. The Democrats have passed $75 billion for this work in May, and then uh, the Senate uh, Republicans passed $16 billion in the form of the HEALS Act, the HEROES Act. And the HEALS Act, and this bipartisan legislation introduced in early August is a $50 billion package, um, so a compromise package, and it re rewards regional collaborations. So it's also incentivizing the sort of further formation of regional collaborations. Um, and this package um, has been held up because of negotiations in Congress and because of the bitterness um, of our polarization, in all honesty. So the Democrats, as you know, are fighting to protect voting and to protect elections. There is also a fight around employment insurance and so forth. And the bitterness of that fight and of those issues is literally blocking investment in our public health response. For me, this is where I have to really, you know, I just want to like sort of shake our entire country and say like, look, you know, we have let our polarization get so bad that it's like literally killing us. And so then there's a long debate to be had about who's responsible for that. And I, I understand that. Uh, but we still have to recognize the magnitude of the problem. We have a definition of citizenship at this show, which is to, to see it as a verb. And there's kind of four components as we've emerged into it. One is to citizen is to show up, right? It's to participate in the process and not just totally outsource things. To citizen is to relate to other people and see our interconnectedness as an essential part of who we are. To citizen is to understand power and the different ways that we can use it and wield it in the society. And to citizen is to put the benefit of the many uh, above the interest of just oneself or, or the few. Uh, so I'm curious, given your work, given your perspective, uh, and given your years of study, what is your definition of a citizen or two citizens? Well, yours is beautiful, and it captures a lot of what I focus on. So my definition of the citizen is to contribute to shaping the decisions of one's community, so to be a co-creator. I like the vocabulary of W.E.B. Du Bois, who talked about being a co-creator in the kingdom of culture. And I do think that to be a citizen is to be a co-creator in the kingdom of culture, in our society of law in our society of social norms and expectations. So that's, for me, the, the core, the idea of co-creation. Yeah. What is your day-to-day -day like with all this work? I mean, you have a couple of jobs. You write these Washington Post columns. You huddle with mayors, apparently. Like, how has your day shifted throughout this crisis? What does it look like now? Um, well, the biggest change is that until about a week ago, I had a daily meeting. 9 p.m. every day for the first three months of the crisis and 8.45 a.m. every day for the second half um, with core members of my broad response network. So that was a different thing for me. So every day was kind of organized by what we were trying to move forward. And so our life in, in my network has been in, I think it's sort of the alphabet soup of our country's connective tissue. What do I mean by that? So we all know we have the federal government, we've got the states, we've got cities, and many of us know we have the National Governors Association, the NGA. But did you know we also have the National Association of State Procurement Officers and the National Association of City and County Health Officials and the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials and the National Association of County Officials? And it just goes on and on. So it's the alphabet soup 
of professional associations that connect elected leaders and appointed officials at all levels. And it turns out that that world is a beautiful place because the people in those associations, they love this country, they love their fellow Americans, and they have all been working their hearts out to do the right thing and to deliver an effective COVID response. And so that's, you know, my day has been living in that alphabet soup and it has shown me where power is that people often have not recognized. You know, you don't think about the National Association of State Procurement Officers as your first stop when you're trying to, to citizen, as Baratunde says, but it's actually a really great place to citizen, in fact. Yeah, I appreciate the shout out to procurement officers it has never been a headline I have seen celebrated in any publication I've ever read. So thank you for recognizing that semi-secret power uh, that we have. This concept of co-creating a kingdom of culture that you cite Du Bois for, what does the co-creation of our culture look like in this moment? So I think for me, one of the most important things there is the concept of power sharing. Martin Luther King, in um, one of his essays, said at a certain point, you know, everybody thinks that civil rights are about laws, changing laws. Actually, what we really have to do is pursue organizational transformation across all the organizations in our country. And I do think that's true. And so when I think about what it means to be a co-creator in the kingdom of culture, it's about art and language and the way in art and language we share power and learn the vocabulary of power sharing. And then it's about how we take that vocabulary and ethical commitment to power sharing into every organization that we're part of. Power sharing. Yeah, it sounds really great for those who haven't had it historically and really threatening to those who have uh, all too often. But that's the thing is that it needn't be because there is this incredible beauty that comes from bringing people together across incredible diversity and empowering them to work together because you get more. Like Humanity gets more from that collaboration across lines of diversity. And for me, this is sort of how human potential is, is realized to its fullest. So it's true, I know that when people aren't used to power sharing or when they're, when they're used to working kind of more homogenous context, it can be scary. But that's where, for me, I was trying to figure out how to open up people to anticipate the beauty and the power of the results is critical. Yeah, well, you know, it is a big project and I got some thoughts on it. The show is one of those thoughts stretched out over multiple episodes with many talented people trying to make it happen. And I think it's about writing a new story of ourselves that expands the opportunity and doesn't see that expansion as a threat, but as like more riches for us all. Uh, everybody rich now, as I said in one of my talks a while back, we try to keep a promise on this show to give people action that they can take to be a contributor, to be a citizen in the big sense, not the legal status sense, but the active sense. And in your words, I guess, to co-create this new story. So given the context of why you're here, given your expertise and your deep knowledge of democracy, justice, and now pandemics, what would you give someone listening to this to do to help out with this response to the pandemic specifically or more broadly with uh, creating a healthier democracy to live in? Well, I think I would give people two jobs, if that's okay. It's plenty. You could give seven, you know, two is a good number. One of my jobs is 31 parts. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But one job is just sort of do an inventory in your mind of the organizations that you're a part of, that you're already a member of, whether that's a church or a workplace or a community organization or an arts society, theater group. And ask yourself, can you see room for improvement with regard to how people share power in that context and space? And take that conversation forward with the people around you. Um, that would be job number one. Okay. And job number two, okay, this is my 31-part job, is I would love it if you visited the website Our Common Purpose at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I think it's just actually Our Common Purpose. If you Google that, it should show up. And we have made 31 recommendations for institutional reforms, for investment in civil society and its capacity to support bridging relationships across lines of difference, and for transformations to our political and civic culture. And, and there, particularly, that's focused on telling a new story of ourselves, telling a rich story, a complete story, an accurate story, a clear-eyed story of ourselves. 
and look at those and figure out if there's a list of 31 recommendations, which is the one that speaks most to you. And you'll find on the website as well, champions, organizations that are working on that particular line of reform, reach out to them, sign up. Maybe they need a volunteer. Maybe they could use a donation. Maybe they just need you to spread the word. There's all kinds of jobs to do. So think of that website as a job shopping list, find the right one for you, and then work on power sharing in your own organizations. I love it. It's like a small D democratic task rabbit. Uh, and you That's totally what it is. <laughs> I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to transition into questions that have been coming from our live studio audience. Uh, this question is from Shosina Reeves in Brooklyn. A CBS poll recently revealed that 57% of Republicans believe the pandemic has been handled in an acceptable way. Only 10% of Democrats do. How do we co-create our culture when we are so far apart on something as fundamental as a pandemic? I do like to observe <laughs> when we hear those kinds of statistics that the Republican Party's been shrinking. So 
Well, it's true that 57% of Republicans have that view, or maybe I presume it's true. It is a smaller group of people than it was a few years ago. Uh, it's important to keep that in mind. And at this point, more Americans are not affiliated by party than are in um, a party. And so I do think if we focus on all those folks who are not affiliated with the party, um, I think we find that there's a lot uh, sort of deeper base for connection with one another than it looks when we really focus on the parties and how the parties are expressing themselves and interacting with each other. Ned, we'll go to you. You can ask your own question in your own voice. So when there is so much selfishness from people who are, are resisting things like wearing masks or, or pushing things to you know get back to school, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to be bothered. And if some people die, some people die. If part of our task is telling that new story, how do we do that without just yelling at people uh, because it's so infuriating to just butt into that kind of self-centeredness. Now that is a, a great question. And I have a friend who is lives in South Carolina and she's been sending me uh, sort of email snippets for the last few months of conversations that she's tried to have, where she's tried to convince people to take the pandemic seriously. This is where I use the language of social contract and I'm not, saying that this is vocabulary that necessarily works when it's trying to have this um, conversation. But for me, it's useful to remind myself what I'm trying to do, which is to say, I have to recognize that um, we've reached a place in the country where at a deep level, we're not committed to each other. Um, and that is exhibited in any number of ways. And it's also exhibited in our kind of ideological polarization. And so I try to make myself my own kind of test case um, so that like, I try to like literally just feel commitment. <laughs> it sounds kind of bizarre, but that is say when I'm feeling uh, infuriated, I try to like register that and ask myself, well, what would commitment feel like? And if this were a person in my family and I was infuriated about them for something else, how would I work through that fury in order to still try to do the right thing by them in terms of if I need to bring them along or whatever else it is I need to do? So I, I literally do just try to tap into my own emotional being to find reserves of fellow feeling that can be hard to tap into um, and try to like think through those feelings to figure out what the right response would be. See, you answered a question I for, kind of didn't realize I had or maybe forgot I had, which is, look, Daniel, my image of you was as this person who's been trying to save the country despite the country's unwillingness to be saved, right? You'd be dropping these papers, you're on these conference calls, you're rolling with procurement officers and mayors. You've got plans and maps. And I know you didn't do all this yourself. I'm not trying to give you credit for everything, but you're associated with so much labor on behalf of the many. And I'm like, how does she keep going? Because I'm seeing elected officials and budget, you know, deciding people saying this doesn't matter. It's not real. It's a hoax. And yet you keep going. So can you offer a little bit more about what keeps you encouraged? Because you're even more exposed to the frustration from my perspective than most of us. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's pretty basic, which is I think every now and then you kind of encounter something where, you know, I think the only possible attitude toward it is failure is not an option. So, you know, it's like, I can't go one way, I'll go around another way, but failure is not an option, that much I know. So, you know, the road is long, longer than I ever imagined or hoped for, but I just, um, from the bottom of my heart, believe failure is not an option. So, you know, what I don't know is how long it will take us till we get to the right place, but I know there's a right place for us to get to. Thank you, Danielle Allen from the Edmund J. Saffer Center at Harvard, from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, from the Washington Post, from the Society of State Procurement Officers secret, semi-secret Zoom meetings. Thank you for sharing your way of citizening with us. Uh, we look forward to doing more and looking forward to see what else you do with us. It's really been a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Likewise, it's been really terrific. Thank you for our team day. Hey you, it's me again, and it's just us again. Amy and Danielle are clearly fighting COVID with everyone and everything they know, pushing beyond their comfort zones, digging into their Rolodexes, their networks to help us all. 
And I want to tell you, we share these stories not because we're trying to put on some kind of Citizen Olympics where only medal winners get to show up. It's actually the opposite. We can all citizen as long as we remember the four elements of how to citizen that we laid out at the beginning of this series. Four parts. Show up and participate. Invest in relationships, recognizing our interconnection to others. Understand power and use it. And use that power for the benefit of the many and not just the few. That's it. That's the formula. Now it's your turn. In every episode, we share things you can do to strengthen your citizen practice. And you can find the complete guide to what I'm about to say at howtocitizen.com. So here are some things you can do. On the internal front, we got two things. First, make a list of all the ways you've helped others during this pandemic since March. Write it down. I don't want you overlooking what you think of as the small or the easy things. It doesn't matter. Take a look at that list and be proud of your citizenship. Number two, reflect on how else you can use who and what you know to make a difference during the pandemic. What kind of knowledge or people do you have or know that could uniquely benefit your unique community? And then outside of yourself in this reflective exercise, we got three things lined up. First, support the Amy's in your community. There is somebody around you right now who is practicing how to citizen in a really deep way, who's organized something. If it's not you, find out who it is and figure out how to support them. Number two, a little more work here. Start a civic circle. This could be a happy hour group. This could be a bridge club. This is people you know and love, but set an intention of gathering with them on a weekly or every other week basis to talk about what you're up to. Make it cool. Make it a part of your check-ins about how you are getting involved during this crisis. If you do it on Sundays, it can substitute for church or brunch. Trust me, I miss brunch. Last, Check out the report that Danielle Allen co-authored, Our Common Purpose. Look at those 31 recommendations and commit to helping implement just one of them in your local community. Again, visit howtocitizen.com for links and a bigger explanation of all of these actions. And when you do them, share them with the world. Post it to the social medias, hashtag howtocitizen. Or you can just tell us email us at action at howtocitizen.com. Help us out by putting COVID in the subject line. We're collecting all this cool stuff you're doing, by the way. It's beautiful. If you like this show, please share it, rate and review it, and sign up for my newsletter at baratunday.com, where I announce upcoming live tapings and a lot more. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcast. Executive produced by Miles Gray, Nick Stump, Elizabeth Stewart, and Baratunde Thurston. Produced by Joelle Smith. Edited by Justin Smith. Powered by you. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. 
Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 